My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of Cane Bay, and it is a uh, privilege and honor to continue this morning uh, through the story of Moses, and specifically we see uh, Moses' life play out in the book of Exodus, but Exodus actually begins in Genesis. The book of Exodus begins way back in Genesis chapter 15, where God promises Abraham that he would make a great nation out of Abraham. And God's covenant promise to Abraham leads us to what will eventually become the Exodus. Because Abraham and his wife give birth to a son, Isaac. And Isaac gives birth to a son, Jacob. And Jacob gives birth to 12 sons, one of whom is named Joseph, of whom his brothers become very jealous. And they sell him into slavery. And he winds up in slavery in Egypt. But he works his way out of slavery by the favor of God to the second in command over all Egypt. And he brings his family to the nation of Egypt And they begin to multiply. And after Joseph has died and several uh, hundred years have passed, the people of Israel, the people of God, the people of Abraham have become very great in the land of Egypt. And it says that there's a Pharaoh that comes that knows nothing of Joseph. And he looks at the people in the land and he says, these these people, if they decide that they want to uprise, they decide they, they could take over our country. And so he enslaves them. And for 450 years, the people of God toil in slavery in Egypt. And we read the book of Exodus, the beginning of Exodus. The people of, Egypt, the people of Israel are enslaved. We read about Moses, who was born to a Hebrew woman in slavery in Egypt, but is raised in the house of Pharaoh. And Moses flees from the house of Pharaoh and goes to the wilderness of Midian. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness. And God comes to Moses in a burning bush, and he calls him back to his people in Israel. And Moses goes back to the Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, Let my people... So you've heard the song too. And we read that Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it. And we have the ten plagues and the Passover. And then the people are sent out from Egypt. And last week we showed this incredible miracle of God, the passing of the people from slavery in Egypt into freedom through the waters of the Red Sea. And we arrive this morning at Exodus chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 19. We arrive this morning at Exodus chapter 19 which is an incredibly important chapter in the life of Moses and in the life of the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible this morning, don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Stop by the connection table on your way out. We'd love to give you a Bible. It will be, uh, words will be on the screen behind me. Also, if you have your iPad or iPhone or just any of your uh, mobile devices, uh, you can download the YouVersion app. And right there on the YouVersion app, just search live events. You'll find Church Cane Bay. All my notes are right there. Uh, however you decide to do it, hope that you would follow along with us this morning in Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is about seven weeks after the people have crossed the Red Sea, and they find themselves in the wilderness of Sinai at the, at the base of Mount Sinai. And what's happening here is God is speaking to Moses, and he's getting ready to deliver to him what will become the basis of the Old Testament law, what we know as the Ten Commandments. 
And he speaks to Moses and he gives Moses some specific requirements and things that the people need to do in preparation for this. And so we have the people gathered, ready to hear from the Lord. And what he gives them is the Ten Commandments, what will become the basis of the Old Testament law. Now, when we talk about Old Testament law, people kind of freak out. Because people go, man, I've read Leviticus. Is this where you're about to tell me that I'm going to hell because I ate bacon-wrapped shrimp this week? And because I wear, a clo- I wear clothes of two different materials? I have read Leviticus. There's some strange things in that. The Old Testament law, I don't know how I feel about this. If we just generalize the Old Testament law as everything that happens in the Old Testament, we miss the point. In fact, you have to categorize the law into three categories. Um, There are three categories of the Old Testament law. The first category was ceremonial law. It was ceremonial law. Now, these were laws put in place by God that determined how the people of Israel were to worship him in the Old Testament. Now, in light of the New Testament, and what we call the New Covenant, which is through Jesus that has been given to us, we no longer have to obey the ceremonial laws that were given to the people of Israel. That's why there's not a line of goats up here that we're going to sacrifice later because you screwed up this week. Like that's ceremonial law, animal sacrifice, ceremonial law. Because of Jesus, we no longer approach God in that way. Now the second part of the law is called civil laws. These were laws that governed the people of Israel as they lived in a theocracy under the law of God. And this determined how they worshiped God, how they were to uh, judge themselves and their nation. And so God set in place specific laws and ways that they were to judge themselves, ways that they were to operate as a nation living in a theocracy. That's why uh, you have people now who, you, you know, you read parts of it. It's like if someone steals bread, stone him. It's a little harsh, right? Like at this point, some of you guys are like going to put that bread back that you took on the way out, you know, in this morning. Like, People have rocks in this place. That's a civil law. Because now we live under the new covenant, the civil laws of the New Testament were specifically for the people of Israel at this time. So you have ceremonial law, you have civil law, and now you have moral law. Moral law. How the people of God were called to deal with God and to deal with one another. And the moral laws of the Old Testament, I believe, still apply. Now, the basis for the moral law of the Old Testament are the Ten Commandments. And when we start talking about the Ten Commandments, the perception of the Ten Commandments is all over the map, probably in this room. And perception is very, very important to understanding the Ten Commandments. Um, When I was in college, I had a roommate. And if if you had a roommate in college, um, you you just kind of think, we'll just kind of figure this out. Like, we'll live together and figure it out. Never works out well. Like, you need to have some ground rules in college with your college roommate. Like, there are specific things you need to just go ahead and decide on. One of the ground rules that my roommate and I had was if um, we were going to share food and drink, we were going to share food and drink, here's what needed to happen. If you drank something of mine or ate something of mine, you needed to replace it with something of greater than or equal value. For example, if I have a Dr. Pepper in the refrigerator, my roommate drinks my Dr. Pepper, he has to replace that with either a Dr. Pepper or an Xbox. Either or, like greater than, equal to. I'm cool with either. What would happen, though, time after time, was this. And and man, this, this was the cause. It's so funny now. This was the cause of a lot of our disagreements. My roommate would drink my Dr. Pepper in the refrigerator, and then he would replace it with a Dr. Thunder, which is the Walmart brand of Dr. Pepper. I would get so angry with him. And I'd be like, listen, 
Like, it's greater than or equal to the value of. And he's like, this is great value. I don't understand what the problem is here. Like, no, that's, that's not it. You're missing the point here. I saw Sam's Cola Walmart brand as inferior to the name brand, the Dr. Pepper. So listen, this is very important. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. It's very important. The way that you perceive something determines how you receive it. And so I perceive this as an inferior product, so I received it as an inferior product. Now, in light of the Ten Commandments, how you perceive the Ten Commandments is going to deeply impact how you receive the Ten Commandments. So if we look at the Ten Commandments this way, as just like ceremonial law and civil law, and it's like that's Old Testament God, we don't have to listen to those things anymore, then we're going to blatantly disregard the Ten Commandments. If we perceive that it's just a part of the ancient law, then we're going to disregard them. Or we can perceive the Ten Commandments as God's means for salvation. We look at the Ten Commandments and we say, this is what God has said. If I do these ten things, I will be saved. And if we perceive the Ten Commandments as God's means to salvation, we will then begin to work to obey to earn our salvation. If we perceive it, as God's means of salvation, we'll begin to work to earn it. But if we perceive the Ten Commandments as guidelines for how God expects his redeemed people to live in light of their salvation, then we'll humbly obey what God lays out for us in the Ten Commandments. And so I think there's really two camps that we fall into on how we perceive the law. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of us probably don't fall into that first camp where we just totally disregard the Ten Commandments. I think most of us fall into one of these two things. Either the Ten Commandments are a law of works, okay? This is God's means of salvation. If I keep these ten things, God will save me. Either it's a law of works which says, if I do these things, God will accept me. Or we see the Ten Commandments as a law of Grace, which says, because God accepts me through Jesus, I do these things. It's a law of works. If I do these things, God will accept me. Or it's a law of grace. Because God has accepted me through Jesus, I do these things. And I believe the Ten Commandments are a law of grace. And the law of grace testifies that God has redeemed his people to a present hope and a future reward. That's what the law of grace testifies to us. That's the point of the Ten Commandments, to show us that we, as the redeemed people of God, have a present hope and a future reward. So let's look at these two perceptions of the, of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament law. First way we can look at it is we can look at it as a law of works. If I do these things, God will accept me. And the law of works sees salvation as a job to be accomplished. So if we see the commandments as a means to salvation, we will begin to work to earn our salvation. This is the job. I'm going to accomplish this. And the law of works begins with requirement. It begins with a requirement. Any job that you go on begins with requirement, right? There's a job requirement. What does this job entail? What does this job require of me so that I know what I have to do to accomplish the job in front of me? Much the same way, if we see the Ten Commandments as the law of works, we see it's a job to be completed. So we ask the question then, what does God require of me? And if we start investigating the scriptures, it kind of rains on our parade a little bit. Because it's not that God just requires us to be, 
do more good things than bad things? God requires us to be holy. His requirement for salvation is holiness. We must be perfectly sinless as he is. Now this is in the New Testament, Leviticus chapter 11. God tells the people, he says, be holy for I am holy. Now it's easy for us to look at that and just go, well, he's just talking to the Old Testament people. But Peter reiterates this to the church in 1 Peter. He says the same thing. The Lord says, be holy for I am holy. And this is where we strike out. Because nobody in this room is holy. Nobody. Nobody is perfectly sinless. No one. And so we look at this and we go, okay, God's standard for salvation, his requirement for salvation is holiness. And I'm sinful. And I can't do anything about that. Listen, we are sinful from our hearts. It's not just the bad things that we do. It's the bad things that we are. You didn't become a sinner the first time you sinned, okay? So when you were two years old and that kid stole a toy from you and you bit him on the neck, like you didn't become a sinner at that moment. It wasn't like, well, you screwed it up now. Like that's on you. No, 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 no. You bite that kid on the neck because of what's inside of you. We're all born into sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And so we look at this and we go, okay, I'm sinful. God's requirement is holiness, perfect holiness. And so like any high school student who is unprepared for a test, all that we can do is hope that God grades on a curve. Is hope that it's on a curve. And so what we start to do is we start to go, okay, I know I'm not holy, but I'm better than that guy. And we begin to derive our holiness, not from the standard of holiness, which is God, but we begin to derive our holiness from comparing ourselves to others. And we start going, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not him. I'm not her. And so what we start to do is we derive our holiness from comparing ourselves to others. And so we set out to continue to work to earn our salvation, hoping that at the end God will look at us and go, you know what, you weren't perfect, but you did okay, come on in. The law of works begins with requirement. And we hope that by our works, we might gain our redemption. So if we see the law as represented in the Ten Commandments, as our means to meeting the requirement of God's holiness, we'll try to keep them so that God will forgive us when we sin. So what we do is we look at the Ten Commandments and we go, mm, I can do that. I, don't, I, I haven't killed anybody this week. I haven't stolen anything. Faithful to my husband and my wife. Like, like I, can, I can do those things. And then we start doing this. Then we start going, you know what? Not only can I do that, I can do some other things too, God. Not only can I do some of these Ten Commandment things, but let me just add a couple more here. Uh, like, like, you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to cuss unless it's college football season. I'm not going to gossip about my neighbor unless I kind of use it as a prayer request. Like, I can do all these things, God. I can do this. And so we start to kind of pile up our good works, knowing that we're sinful and knowing that we're going to sin and hoping that we can do enough good things that God goes, yeah, you messed up there, but you did pretty good here. And we hope that our works will buy our redemption, that our works might buy our holiness. But here's the problem. 
Holiness is not a matter of the hands. Holiness is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of what we do with our hands. It's a matter of the position of our heart. There's this great story in Mark chapter 10 where a rich young man who's well-to-do comes to see Jesus. He says he's, he's very young, very wealthy, very prominent. He comes to see Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same question we're asking. What does God require of me? What do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus goes, you know the commandments. Don't, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't covet. And the guy goes, bingo. Jesus, I've kept all the commandments since I was a little kid. Kept all of them. So if that's the requirement, I'm in. And it says that Jesus looks at the man and he loves him and he says, one thing you lack. Take all that you own, sell it, give it to the poor, follow me. And it says that the man walked away disheartened because he had great wealth. Now, what is this a story about? Is this a story about that you should go cash in your 401k today, give it all to the soup kitchen, and follow Jesus in order to be a Christian? No, that's again, that's a reading of that story from an idea that we can earn our salvation. That's not what Jesus is after. Jesus is after his heart, and he looks at the man, and he perceives that the greatest competitor in this man's heart for his worship is his wealth. And so Jesus is after his heart when he says, get rid of that. Follow God. He is to be your treasure. He is to be your worth. He is to be your value. And it says the man walks away. He walks away. Because he wants holiness to be a matter of the hands, not of the heart. And we do the same thing. Okay, God, what can I do? What can I do to earn salvation? Jesus goes, no, it's not, it's not about that. It's about where is your heart? And this is going to plague Israel all throughout the Old Testament. If you read the story of Israel, this plagues them all throughout the Old Testament. They, they just fall into this kind of ritualistic, going through the motions worship of God. And God hates it. He hates it. In Malachi, he tells the people, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I wish that you would just shut it down. Don't open the doors. Don't pray. Don't give your offering because I don't have your heart. You haven't done anything to fix the real problem. It's not your actions. It's your heart. You see, our heart is sinful. And because of that, our, Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In the same way, out of the overflow of the heart, the hands do. And so all of our actions, even if they're good actions, apart from Christ, with a sinful heart, they're garbage. They're not worth anything. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 64. He says, we've all become one like, like one who is unclean. And even our righteous deeds, even our good things that we would do for God are like filthy rags. Because they're stained with our sin. Um, if I were going to, let's say I was going to make you a sandwich. Think about your favorite sandwich. Don't think too hard because it's almost lunchtime. You'll get hungry and then you'll drift. Listen, but think about your favorite sandwich. Uh, I don't care what it is. Roast beef, peanut butter and jelly, grilled cheese, whatever your favorite sandwich is. Let's say I came to you and I said, you know what? It's lunchtime. Let me make you your favorite sandwich. And you said, great, let's do that. But I said, before I do that, I'm going to go out back here behind the middle school and the elementary school. They've got some dumpster issues that really need to be fixed, that need to be 
like taken care of, like some of the bags have busted open inside of there, and they've been sitting out there. They didn't pick them up last week. It's just kind of disgusting. So let me go. i got to clean this up. So I go out, and I clean up this dumpster. Man, I don't use gloves because I'm a man. And I start, like, just taking apart, like, all of the dumpster stuff. I clean up even, like, the weird liquidy stuff at the bottom. And then I get all this stuff, like, taken care of. And then I come in, and I go, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, I was making a sandwich. And I come right in, I don't wash my hands, and I start making that sandwich. And I go, here you go, I made that sandwich. You can eat that noise? No, Why? She's like, man, look at your hands. Look at your hands. The filth of your hands is staining this good sandwich. And I don't want that sandwich. It's the same thing that happens to us. If our hearts and our hands are still sinful, even the good things we would offer to God, we don't want those things. Apart from Christ, all that we're doing is offering God dumpster sandwiches. Here, God, I made this for you. So what's the reward of our work? If we see the Ten Commandments as a job to be accomplished so that we earn our salvation, like any job, if you do the work, you should get paid. So what's our payment for our working to earn God's salvation? Romans 4.4 says, Now to one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as do. So uh, on Friday, after you work all week, when your boss writes you a paycheck, that's not his gift to you. That's what you've earned. And so if we're going to work to earn our salvation, at the end, what do we earn from God? Well, here's the problem. If we just said that all of our work apart from Christ is sinful, then what we're going to earn is the wage for our sin. The Bible's pretty clear on what that is. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, what we earn from our sinful works is death. The reward for our trying to keep the law by our works for our salvation is death. Trusting in your good works, the good things you can do, trusting in your good works for your salvation is like committing spiritual suicide. All you're earning is death. So if the commandments aren't a law of works, they must be a law of grace. And the law of grace and the law of works are similar. I'm going to use the same wordage here, but, but there's a difference. Similar. We've got to be careful because it's very easy for us sometimes to think the Ten Commandments are a law of grace, but then begin to fall into a pattern of treating them as a law of works. So what's the difference between the law of grace and the law of works? So look back. If you've got your Bible still open, Exodus chapter 19, let's look at how God sets this up because it's important. In verse 4, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's important how God structures that sentence. Notice what he does. Notice that he says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And now if you'll keep my covenant, you'll be a treasured possession. Notice, God did not give the law to the people while they were in slavery. 
and say, do these things and I'll get you out. No, no, no. God delivers the people from slavery and then he gives them the law. That's important. That's important. He doesn't give them the law and then deliver them. He delivers them and then gives them the law. The law of grace begins with redemption. The law of grace begins with redemption. The law of grace begins with God. It doesn't start with you going, what do I have to do? No, no, no. The law of grace begins with God. Now, if we're going to call it the law of grace, we've got to understand what grace is. Grace is an undeserved gift. It is an undeserved gift. It means you didn't earn it. You're not worthy of it. It's been given to you by God. This is the hardest thing for me. Listen, I'll be transparent with you as your pastor. This is the hardest thing for me. Sometimes, because I want to feel worthy of God's grace. I want to feel worthy. I want to feel like I earned it. I want to feel like I deserve it. But at the moment I feel most worthy of God's grace, it is at the moment that I am most efficient of it. Because grace is based on my being unworthy of it. And so here's the people of Israel, unworthy, and God says, I've delivered you by grace. By grace. In much the same way, Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were an object of wrath rebellious against God. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, called you out, made you his own. Verse eight, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one might boast. What does he say? He says, salvation comes by grace, an undeserved gift, through faith, believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he promised to do, not as a result of works. It's not what you do for God. It's what God has done for you. That's how salvation comes to us. And so the law becomes a law of grace in this way. we got to understand this. Part of the point of the law is to show us that we can't keep the law. Like, let's just take the Ten Commandments for for just as an example. They're not the summation of the totality of the law. They're just representative of it. So let's just look at the Ten Commandments. How many Ten Commandments have you broken this week. This week, just this week. How many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this week? Okay, now you start thinking, listen them off. Okay, well, I didn't steal anything. I didn't murder. I was faithful to my husband. Faithful to my wife. Okay, but what about, the, what about the first one? Let's just say there was one commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. We can't even keep that one. Like one. And so part of the grace of God is by giving us the law and showing us that we can't keep the law. And so our hope then is only that someone else will keep the law for us. That's grace, man. It's God's grace that you can look at the law and go, I can't do this. Somebody else has got to do this for me. Because at that point, you're starting to get on the right track. At that point, we're starting to move towards the point of the law of grace, that we need a mediator. Last week, we talked about this, that why were the people of Israel able to pass through the Red Sea and the people of Egypt were not? It wasn't because the people of Israel were better than the Egyptians, but it was because they had a mediator. They had one that would go between them and God. And so if we're going to pass through the waters of judgment from slavery to sin into freedom, we've got to have a mediator. We've got to have a Moses. And the good news is that we do. We have a better Moses. 
we have one who perfectly kept the law, fulfilled every point of the law for you. When you couldn't do it, he did it for you. Not only that, he died the death that you should have died for breaking the law. So here we have a mediator, a savior, who not only dies for sinners, but lives for them. And so salvation then comes to us, not through our works, what we do, but through grace, what Jesus has done. The law of grace begins with redemption, what God has done on our behalf. So what then are the Ten Commandments? Are they just like what we see and go, well, wow, Jesus kept all those things for me. That's great. Is that what the commandments' purpose is? No, no, no. The purpose of the commandments now are to show us what it looks like to live in a blessed relationship with the Father who has redeemed us. Listen, law-keeping doesn't provide your salvation, but law-keeping gives evidence that you have been saved. You see that? Like you following the Ten Commandments doesn't earn your salvation. But if you've been saved, man, if you've been redeemed by grace, then you're going to look at the way that God has called for his people to live and go, I want to live that way. I want to humbly obey in that moment so that we and others around me might see what it looks like to have a blessed relationship with God. But here's the problem. We don't see the law that way. We don't see God's commands as grace. We don't see God's commands as joy. We don't see God's commands as good. We see them as burdens. This is just God telling me what I have to do. This is just God trying to keep me from doing what I want. The biblical writers don't see the law this way. Nowhere in the Bible is the law of God seen as weight. Look, let's just look at the Psalms. Psalm 1, David says, Blessed is the man. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the place of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, on which he meditates day and night. So David sees it as delight. But not only that, he says in Psalm 19, he's talking about the law of the Lord. He says, more are your laws to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. So David says, not that the laws aren't burdens, they're delight. They're desirable. John says this, 1 John 5, 3. He says we, we know the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, so they're not weighty. If we see the law of God, the commands of God, as what they are, means of grace to us, showing us how it is God desires for us to live. So if we perceive that the commands of God hold us back, we receive them as weights. But if we perceive them as what is ultimately setting us free, we perceive them with joy. Um, give you this example. So uh, my son, Titus, he is my son um, because he was born to me. Because I did the work to create him. I say work. He's, he's my son, right? Now, when my son is born, I don't look at my infant son and say, okay, uh, get a job, uh, start taking care of some housework. I don't start putting things on him. 
need you to be uh, honest. Uh, I need you to have a good reputation. I don't start putting things on him and say, you do these things, then you'll be my son. No, he's my son because he's my son. He's not my son by worth. He doesn't have to be worthy to be my son. He's my son by birth. He was born to me. He's my son. Now, what I'm going to do from that point forward, because he's my son, because I love him, because I want to see him succeed, because I want what's best for him, I'm going to parent him and put a structure in place that says, these are the things that I need you to do, that I want you to follow so that you will be successful, so that you will get what's best, because I love you and you're my son. That's what God does with the law. You weren't born into the kingdom of God because you kept a bunch of laws and you became worthy to be a son. No, you were born through redemption. And now what God says to you is he goes, listen, this is the pattern that I've designed for you to live by so that you might have what's best because I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And so the law then becomes joy to us because we know that through the law, God is showing us what he desires of us. And so what then is our reward? What then is our reward? We're not redeemed by works, but by grace. And so what's the reward here? Notice, I want you to notice this. This reward, the reward of the law of grace does not come for our works. In the law of works, we're rewarded for our works. It's not the way it works in the law of grace. In the law of grace, you're rewarded for your redemption. You're rewarded for something you didn't even do. That's incredible. God rewards his redemption. He says, I've redeemed you. I've shown you the way that I want you to live, and now I'm going to reward you because I redeemed you. That's a great deal. That's a great deal. He tells the people in Exodus chapter 19, he, he says, listen, you keep my covenant. You're my treasured possession. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. And those aren't just random compliments that he's throwing out. No, no, those have a purpose. Think about it. What's your most treasured possession? It's the thing that you set your affections most deeply on. So when God calls the people of Israel his treasured possession, what he's saying to them is you have my affection. Through, my, through the redemption." You now have the affection, the love of the creator God of the universe. Then he says, not only do you have my affection, but I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, it was the priests who were able to go before God. It was the priests that got God's attention. So not only do you now have the love and the affection of the creator God of the universe, you have his attention. He knows you. He's not ignorant to your plight. He sees you. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop and say, not only do you have my affection and you have my attention, but he calls them a holy nation. Holy. He says, I've made you a holy nation. I've fulfilled the requirement that I've asked of you. So not only do we have his affection and his attention, but we have his acceptance. That you are now accepted by the creator God of the universe. Now listen. 
He says this, and then he says this, and I thought this was just kind of a throwaway phrase until a couple days ago, and God lit this up in my heart. And if you only hear one thing this morning, I want you to hear this. God says this to the people of Israel. He says, I'm going to make you my treasured possession. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to make you a holy nation. Then he says, the whole earth is mine. Now, that's not God just throwing in random words. You know what God's saying there? He's saying, All of this is mine. I can get anything that I want and I choose you. Whole earth is mine. Anything that I want, I can have. And I've chosen you. To have my affection and my attention and my acceptance. If the God of the universe sees me in my sin, He calls me his own. And he redeems me out of the penalty of my foolish works. And he says, I love you. You have my attention. I accept you through Jesus. I could have anything else and I choose you. Why in the world would I wouldn't want to humbly and faithfully obey what he has to say? That's the point of the commandments. That's the point. That God has redeemed us by grace through faith in Jesus. And now we keep these things out of our love for our Father and so that others might see and know who he is. But not only do we have this reward, we've got a future reward. In Romans 8, Paul says we haven't received a spirit of fear fall back into, we haven't received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We've received a spirit of the son. He says through Jesus, we've been made sons. And if we're sons, then we're also heirs. Heirs of the promise. Heirs of the inheritance. Which means that now, through Jesus, we inherit what he inherits. And that's all things. So it says there's a future reward for being redeemed. And it's that we will inherit all things as Jesus has inherited all things. Even though we are now adopted sons and daughters of God. Listen, one of the things that I love about um, our church is, man, just the seriousness that we have about adoption. And we've got families in our church that have adopted. And and listen, um, when it comes down to it at the end, when those families are giving out an inheritance they're not going to see any difference between their biological children and their adopted children. They are now all their children. They all share in the inheritance. In much the same way, on the last day, God doesn't draw any distinguishment between Jesus, his son, and you, his adopted son. We will share in the inheritance of our father. That is a future reward. And so when we see the law of grace this way, It gives us a present hope that God has redeemed us, that he's made us his own. By grace, through faith. And we now want to walk in a way that pleases him. We want to walk in a way that pleases him because he loves us and we know that he desires what's best for us. And this is the way that he's told us to walk. So we want to walk that way. And that is our hope. We trust in our Savior but not only do we have a present hope, but we have a future reward. That we will one day inherit the reward of our 
redemption. The glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that enables us to walk through things that might be hard. Paul goes on in Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider the present sufferings will not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. And so what does that say? It says we can walk in this present hope, this future reward, even through very difficult times and circumstances. Because we trust in a Savior who has done what we could not. We trust in a law, not of works, but of grace, that testifies to us that God has redeemed his people to a present hope and a future reward. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word because it is true and it is right and it is good. Father, I'm so thankful this morning for grace. I could never express how grateful we are for grace. God, salvation is offered based on what you have done, not on what we do. And Father, now we walk from place of acceptance. Not for it, but from it. God, so that you would be honored and glorified in our lives so that you might be seen by others to be our treasured possession. And so, Father, I pray for those in this room this morning, God, that like I are stumbling, falling, failing in this effort, God, to not make it about us, not make it about works. God, I just pray that you would continue to reveal yourself in such a way, Father, that we would know that you've done what is necessary to reconcile us. God, that we would see your law not as burden, but we would see your law as delight, knowing that you, we have a loving Father who loves us, desires what's best for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for meeting with us in this place. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.